podcast. We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. Hello friends. Welcome to this new series, The Beginner's Guide to the Apocalypse. Uh, hosted by a beginner. Um, I, I absolutely can't claim any expertise in this area. In probably, a confession is, it's probably a book that I've resisted studying properly until now. Um, and I don't quite, well, now I'm into it, I'm like, why have I left it so long? Um, but I guess the prayer is for us as a community to feel like we can approach this book um, in our devotion times for the rest of our lives because we find Jesus there. And um, if, if we end up somewhere else, then probably we've not, um, we've not looked at it properly. Um, uh, I've lent heavily on uh, the writing and teaching of a guy called Daryl Johnson, a bit from Nancy Guthrie. If it sounds good, it will be from them. <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll direct you to some of their resources. And John is the author of Revelation, and he's convinced as a faithful disciple of Jesus uh, that there's more to reality than meets our unaided senses. So if John was here, and he was kind of introducing it a little bit, he might say something like this. Look around you, take in all the data you can with your eyes, listen with your ears, Taking all the data you can, smell, touch, taste, taking everything you can with your five senses, and then realize, as I did on the island of Patmos, that there is more to what we call life than we can see with our unaided senses and intellect and emotions. There's much more. John, uh, basically, John experienced the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And um, in the first century, if someone heard the word apocalypse, they'd be like, fantastic, brilliant. We're going to get some understanding. Something's going to be revealed to us that we previously hadn't understood. Uh, Because that's what the word means. It means uh, an unveiling or a revealing. It's not how it's used in the news most of the times, which is kind of interspersed with kind of a kind of cataclysmic events. Uh, the apocalypse is something that we are as a people. We are people who are there to reveal Christ and his kingdom to the world around us. Uh, so that's what I, uh, we, we need to have in mind when we read this book. Um, so there's more to the present moment that we can know with our intellect and emotions and imagination. And this literature is designed to pull us into that space. Um, it's not revealing destruction. In fact, it has pastoral purposes. Um, John is writing to the church, the church then, but also the church now. And so there's a strong pastoral theme throughout the book that comes through and is there for us. And it's really this. Firstly, it's to set this present moment uh, for us 
whatever we're facing, whatever we've been through, all our ups and downs, all the uncertainty, all our hopes and dreams, to set this present moment in the light of the unseen realities of the future. So we have hope. We see something we couldn't have seen. We understand something that goes deeper. Jesus is coming. That's kind of what it's saying. Jesus is coming, and he's bringing with him a new heaven and a new earth. It shapes how we see the present and how we live in it. And secondly, it sets this present moment in the light of the unseen realities of the present. What's going on behind the curtain? What's going on in heaven that we need to be aware of, that we can lean into, that we can trust, that we can be thankful for, because it impacts our lives today? It's a bit like this... this Slide, or a bit like yesterday. Yesterday is much better when all the fog was around. We know the sun was up there somewhere. We just couldn't see it. We needed a, an apocalyptic moment or a gradual one for it to be revealed and break through. That's how it is with the kingdom of heaven. It's here, it's not far away. It's just a different dimension. That's the teaching of Christ. That's why he says, the kingdom of God's at hand, and the time is near because the kingdom's near, and Christ is near. What we're wanting, what we're longing for is a revealing. It's why in Romans it talks about the whole creation groans, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be apocalypse, to be revealed. That's what this is about. So shall we read the first little bit, and then we're going to kind of swivel back into trying to um, set, a, set some foundations for reading the rest of the book. Um, so we're in Revelation 1, 1 to 8, so at least for a few moments, the prologue of this book. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, that's the one on the screen. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to his message, its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who always was, and who is still to come. From the seven sp sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him. And even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. That's quite an intro, isn't it? <laughs> Either he's who he says he is, and we need to listen carefully, or we're free to discard it. The title of this book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. This book is all about Jesus Christ. That's what Daryl Johnson says. He says, I'll quote him here. The purpose of this book is to set the present moment in the light of the unseen reality of the future and set the present moment in the light of the unseen reality of the present. And as it turns out, that greatest unseen reality of the present is the crucified, risen, reigning, and coming Jesus of Nazareth. Do you believe this? John says that unless we believe this, we do not understand this historical moment correctly. It's a game changer. So, how are you feeling about getting into Revelation? I hope so. I hope it's going to kind of deepen us as a people and as individuals and, and, and create a greater curiosity. As we want to go deeper, this is a great way to go deeper. And if we read this book rightly, we will end up at the feet of Jesus. If we end up anywhere else, we're not reading it right. That's quite simple, isn't it? It's quite helpful. Um, we shy away from it from all kinds of, for all kinds of reasons. Um, lots of wacky ideas, all kinds of things out there. But we don't want to shy, shy away from it. We want to get into it. So um, I, I feel relieved, actually, um, that we're doing this series. I also feel humbled, and I also feel full of anticipation. We're not going to get it 100% right. We're not going to unfathom all the, all the literature and symbolism. We're not going to understand it all, but we're hopefully going to understand what God wants us to understand for this time. And there's some really good reasons why we should study this book. We can understand the central message, that's one. Secondly, we need to see this world and our lives in this world through the perspective of heaven. And we want the blessing that's there in those first few verses, the blessing that is promised to those who hear and keep this book, those who read it and listen to it. And we need to live out the story that Revelation tells. So here are a few thoughts, really, for us to make the most of this series, to be able to study it uh, in our small groups and on our own, and as we um, unpack it week by week over the next few weeks. Uh, hopefully this will help us. The first, first thing is we need to be ready to use our visual imagination. Um, in many places in Scripture, the Bible readers, writers tell us what they heard the Lord say to them. In Revelation, John writes a lot about what he saw. In fact, John says, I saw 40 times. He uses this phrase, I saw. He keeps seeing new things. What does he keep seeing? It rolls on. Now, what did he see? Well, it's like John witnesses this living drama. It's like Jesus put on a play for him. And this play has many acts, and the acts have scenes, and there's supporting actors, and there's light, and there's noise, and there's sound effects, and there's all kinds of things involved in the play. And there are characters in this play. 
And the interesting thing about the characters is they change costumes a lot. They're the same characters, but they come in different forms, especially Jesus. He has a lot of costumes. Uh, and so that's really helpful for thinking about when we read this book, where is Jesus? Where does he keep coming up? How is he presenting himself now? Now, I don't know how he did this play for John, uh, but the fact that he could do it, I have no problem believing. We live in a very kind of vivid world, don't we? It's an incredible world that we live in, in a sense, of all that's around us. And we're inundated by images throughout uh, the course of every single day. And these images threaten to define reality for us. But they're not the full picture of reality. And that's why revelation is so important, because it's that pulling back of the curtain to this deeper reality. In case we kid ourselves that what we see is all there is, so Revelation is presenting to us a fuller picture of reality that we can't see with our physical eyes. It's providing for us an opportunity to see beyond time and space and to see all of it from heaven's perspective. We need to also develop our skills at interpreting symbols because it's full of symbols. So I'm going to chat through a few of the symbols that it alludes to. Jesus, when he was on earth and he spoke, um, he would use lots of symbols to describe himself, his own person, his work. He likened himself to a good shepherd or light or bread or a door or a vine. But when we get into Revelation, he takes things quite a bit further. <laughs> He doesn't necessarily use the everyday things that are around. He's wanting to stretch us, um, grab us, get hold of us, you know, um, get our attention about who he is. So when we get into Revelation, we, we see even in the first chapter, one like the Son of Man, white hair, fiery eyes, his feet and his uh, face shone. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. And then we meet him in chapter 5. Jesus Christ as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Is that how he looks right now? If we pull back the curtain, is that what we'd see? What John saw was a symbol of how Jesus was wanting to present himself. And there's around 90 descriptions of Jesus in the book of Revelation. So the symbols of Revelation point to the magnificence of who and what Jesus is, especially his deity. And, a, and maybe a, a good rule for kind of biblical interpretation is that we should interpret the less clear passages of Scripture by those that are clearer. Um, and not one of the images in Revelation of Jesus is a literal, physical depiction of him. That's a relief, isn't it? Because when we embrace him, we're not going to get stabbed in the neck by a sword coming out of his mouth. None of them are literal. They're all pictures of who he is, attributes uh, to who he is. 
And then there's lots of numbers in Revelation that have caused all kinds of theories, uh, thoughts over the years. So we'll have a look at the numbers. We'll just whip through them quite quickly, I think. Um, two, a symbol for witness. Think of them as symbols, not just literal things. So much of Revelation is about symbols. So the numbers are, are very, very symbolic in Revelation. Three, a symbol for completeness, the Trinity. Seven also speaks of completeness or perfection or salvation. It represents something of God's sovereign plan in its perfection and completeness. Ten also speaks of completeness in the human experience and dimension. Twelve speaks of completeness in terms of the community of God's people, of unity and diversity. 666, a symbol for less than perfection, three times less. A thousand symbolizes largeness, hugeness. So where we have um, measurements, you know, the, the, the temple, a, a, a thousand cubits long and high and wide, and then it gets translated into our Bibles as being 2.76 kilometers. We're, we're totally missing the point. It's about the breadth and the size and the hugeness. And then we get even bigger. 144,000. Countlessness. Many, 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 many. And then the number seven. The number seven is particularly uh, relevant in the book of Revelation. Indeed, throughout scripture. It's used 53 times. And uh, just interesting facts about these multiples of seven. Fascinating. Um, four sets of seven judgments. The seven seals, seven trumpets, seven pearls of thunder, seven bowls. There's seven references to the phrase, every tribe, tongue, people, nation. The Lord Almighty, seven times. The one who sits on the throne, seven times. Christ, seven times. Jesus gets an upgrade. He gets 14 times, seven times two. The Lamb, Really fascinating. The lamb 28 times. What is it about the lamb? What is it about the way God works? The way he lays himself down. The way he surrenders. The way he uses his power. It, it's staggering. It, it, it's incredible. Uh, this is something I think we, we need to spend more time meditating on. What, what is it about the lamb? Why does the almighty God, the one who is, who was, who is to come, choose to reveal himself and reference himself as a lamb so many times? Probably have more questions than answers, but it's good to get curious. Um, sometimes the meaning of Revelation simple, uh, symbols are, are plain. They're, they're straightforward. They're, they're even stated explicitly. For example, we're told the lampstands represent the churches. White linen represents righteous acts of the saints. The ancient serpent is the devil. And sometimes they're a little bit more challenging. Uh, for example, we read about the lamb standing as though it had been slain. And we, we know that this is John using symbolism to communicate something about the crucified Christ. 
when he speaks of God and the Lamb being seated on the throne, he's using symbolism to communicate something about the sovereignty of God over the universe, over history. When he speaks of the beast, he's communicating something of the nature and intentions of Rome in its day and every government and system that sets itself up against God since then. These are really helpful things to have in mind that we don't just read it and think, what on earth is going on here? Well, actually, that just begins to make a little bit more sense. It particularly made sense to the to the first century hearers because of what they were facing. When he describes the dragon with seven heads and ten horns, he's communicating something about the terrifying power of Satan. He's using symbols to reveal the true nature of things. And it goes on, Babylon, a symbol of worldly idolatry, the sea, a symbol of chaos and threat of evil. So with that, um, we need to lean into the Old Testament, which most of us can't do to the level that is needed, anywhere near to understand this book. So this is why it's really helpful to have people like um, the guy I've been leaning on for this content, Daryl Johnson, to, to give us some of these insights. The book of Revelation it quotes the Old Testament 150 times, and there are over 250 uh, allusion, allusions to the Old Testament. So that's quite a chunk. You've got to know your Old Testament pretty well if you're to read Revelation and go, oh, I, I recognize that symbol. I, I, I know where that's come from. But we can begin to do it. I mean, if we do it in a small part, it can help us do it in other parts. So, for example, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 19, John says... Um, uh, God says to Israel, I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, he's not saying he flew the people out of Egypt on big eagles. It's not literal. It's that sense of speed and strength and rescue. Similarly, in Revelation, it's not a, a metaphor for airplanes in the future. It's John's just saying what he saw as he saw it. Um, and so we must, we must consider what these things meant to his first century hearers. What did they mean? How did, it, how did they find resonance even with the, the specific social, political, cultural, and religious world of the first century? There's no secret code waiting to be unlocked. So, alongside that, we also want to have some sense of how the book's organized. Uh, and, and I love this. This is, um, I just found this so helpful when, when I came across this. And I feel, particularly for Open Heaven, um, the way Daryl Johnson has explained this is, has been brilliant for me. He says the structure of the book is very, very simple. There's a prologue and there's an epilogue. And in between, there's a great big vision. There's not revelations. It's a revelation the revelation of Jesus Christ. The prologue is eight verses, the epilogue is 11 verses, and in between we have this vision. And he says there's a helpful way to think about this vision being built around the word open, and that kind of makes sense because an apocalypse is an opening, it's a revealing. So the fact that this word open 
um, crops up at these particular points is really helpful in terms of understanding some of the structure of it. And it's, again, it goes back to this play idea. If it's a play or a theatre, and there's different acts and there's different characters, different costumes, Act 1, after the prologue, is Jesus standing amongst the seven churches giving his seven messages. And then we hit Revelation 4.1, where it says, a door, uh, a door open in heaven. A door was open in heaven. And then Act 2 begins. And we're taken into the throne room, where we see Jesus as the Lamb sitting at the center of the throne, and he's breaking the seals on the scroll of history. And there are seven angels uh, that sound trumpets. And then Act 2 closes, and Act 3 begins in Revelation 11:19. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. We're going deeper in. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And Act 3 is bracketed by this phrase, or this word sign, I saw a sign, and then it ends with I saw a sign. In fact, it's a, it's a great, marvelous sign. That's what it really is. But it's bracketed by that phrase. And then Act 3 finishes, and Act 4 starts. And it's almost like it goes deeper again. With the temple of the ta tabernacle of testimony was opened, Revelation 15.5. The temple of the tabernacle of testimony. That's not an easy thing to say. <laughs> And then Act 4, we come back into the throne area. We have the seven bowls of judgment leading up to John having this vision of the destruction of Babylon, the harlot. And then we have the final opening in Revelation 19, 11, Saw heaven opened. An open heaven. I wonder what else God has for us as we study this. What he wants to communicate to us about us as his people, his church. Um, that we must pay attention to. And so that fifth and final act, Jesus emerges on a horse. His name is the word of God. His robe is dipped in blood, his own blood, the blood he shed for the world. And as soon as he shows up, the end starts happening. And now, as we've mentioned, in all these sections, Jesus changes costumes. He presents himself in a different way. So right at the end, he presents himself as the temple and then as the lamp in the midst of the, of the new heaven and the new earth. And the last thing he says about himself is that he's the bright morning star. How are we doing? <laughs> yeah? Now this next bit is really important. Um, because this whole order, this whole play, it's not chronological. It's a repeat. It's like the same thing being repeated, um, like a film being shot from a different angle, and you pick up different things. And that's a really helpful thing to, 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 to recognize. Otherwise, you hit the end of the world about six times. <laughs> um, you hit the end, not the, you know, or the beginning, whatever way you want to see it. So, so this is really important. The questions you want to ask as you're going through it is not what happens next, but what did John see next that helps inform what's going on? The most important thing we need to understand about the organization of Revelation is that it retraces the same events from different angles 
each with a different emphasis and focus. So, there we go. So let's um, just pick up a few things, not, not too many, in Revelation 1, 1 to 8. So this is the prologue to the letter. And if you remember, John also wrote a prologue, prologue to his gospel. And it's got some similarities. And, and what that does is, um, um, he, you know, the prologue to the gospel of John is, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John puts that at the start of his gospel to make sure that when you read all the events that are to come, you read them correctly. You understand Jesus' life as, as, as having come from that place, that God, the word, is now in flesh. And so there's a prologue to the apocalypse, to this book, Revelation. And, and we keep those glasses on when we read the whole book. Uh, and as we read it out before, it basically lays out God saying, I'm God, <laughs> um, in a number of different ways. He, um, and just a little bit more on context, really. Um, it's thought that he wrote this in about AD 96. And it's a letter. Well, actually, it's not just a letter. It's, it's, um, it's a revelation, so it's apocalyptic. It also contains prophecy, but it's also a letter. It's the longest letter to the church in Scripture. And we often don't think about it being a letter, but this is a letter that would circulate around the churches. We're going to get onto that. It's, um, it's incredibly exciting, actually. Um, but the date is AD 96, and what's happened just prior to that, in AD 70, Jerusalem is destroyed. Peter's been crucified. Timothy's been murdered. Paul is likely to have been beheaded. There's been a lot of persecution going on. So he's writing to a church that has faced a lot and is facing a lot, which is why this perspective on heaven, the future reality and the present reality is so, so important. There's an emperor that's been in place since AD 81 called Domitian, and he was... Um, not a nice piece of work. He was demanding that people bow down and worship him. Previous em emperors would have wanted to be worshipped after they died. He was demanding that he got worshipped while he was still alive. This is the reason John is on Patmos. He's refused. He's been exiled. He's on this prison island called Patmos. Uh, so he's writing to these people who are under this oppressive rule. And much of this, much of the imagery, much of the uh, language is against the Roman Empire, but it's also against all empires that establish themselves in opposition to God's, or that scare and seduce God's people away from their allegiance to Jesus. Uh, we had, I wasn't here, but I know some of you were here, the lady who heads up Open Doors. Um, she was sharing some things in this room yesterday about the persecuted church. This thing is very, very real. Um, it was real for them then, it's real for many today. Um, so, um, what else? Where should we go from here? Well, let's go to verse 5, because this also frames uh, some of what's going on in this letter. Uh, it tells us that Jesus loves us. 
he loves us. The dominant image of the church in this book is the bride. And the bridegroom puts on a play. It's to help us see that we're not, um, we may be not loving him as we might do. And so he wants to open our eyes to all, all that he is and um, remain loyal to him. Verse 8, again, getting a picture of who Jesus is. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Um, the A to Z. And then the beginning of the end, the beginning and the end. The beginning in Greek is the word archi. Um, it's got a sense of sequence, the beginning of a sequence. So Jesus is the beginning, and he's the archetype. He's the archetype of everything that comes in the sequence. So he kind of says, I am the ark. I am the beginning. I am the archetype of what? What's he the beginning of? He's the beginning of creation, of humanity, of history, of salvation. He's the archetype of all things. Everything has its beginning in him and takes its shape in him. It's quite a claim. <laughs> and then, he's not only the beginning, he's not only the archetype, he's the end. He's the telos, the Greek word telos. It means the inherent destiny of a thing. The telos of an acorn is an oak tree. The inherent destiny in an acorn is to become an oak tree. I am the telos of what? Well, it's of everything. I'm the inherent destiny. He's the telos, the end, because he's the ark, the beginning. Jesus Christ is the archetype and the destiny of creation. It's a massive claim. It also means that he's our archetype and destiny. And really the implications are immense. They're huge. One implication is it kind of makes sense of the anguish of life. If we're made to live his way, either we do or life doesn't really work as it's supposed to. And at the heart of so much anguish in the world is choosing to go away from his way, to go against his way. But Jesus' claim here, it gives tremendous hope. Jesus is going to have his way. And we're going to become like him. So my hope, my prayer, my expectation is that the courage and conviction to really live that way through seeing Jesus in all his splendor, his majesty, his authority, his victory through this apocalypse, through this book of Revelation will really help us live well, will really help us go deeper will help us go wider, will help us go further. A few final thoughts. The worship was really lovely before, wasn't it? Uh, it has been, actually, for a while, a uh, sense of what God does when we worship him. It was on the Lord's Day, it was on the Sabbath, that John was worshipping when he received this apocalypse, when he had this revelation. We get to glimpse Jesus more clearly as we worship him, as we set our eyes on him. And so maybe there's a, a challenge alongside reading this book and grappling with it to, to worship 
him. Uh, and to think what that might mean for us, both on a Sunday and in our daily lives, what might it mean in order that we can see him more clearly. So Revelation, it wasn't written to entertain or to set out a timeline for the future or to satisfy our curiosity about when Christ will return. Revelation was written to 45 Christians to live in a world enduring at times very harsh treatment and alienation with a firm confidence that this world is not all there is. And that, in fact, what at times is going to seem like defeat will give way to victory. Revelation 1.3. God blesses the one who reads the words of prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. I pray that we can enter into that blessing. What is that blessing? What is the blessing that God wants to give us? Well, ultimately, it's more of himself. Who he is. What he has for us. So, I'm going to finish there. We can maybe take a few breaths. Breathe in, breathe out. How does God want to oxygenate us with who he is, with his presence? Maybe we'll just pause and... Looks like the band are getting ready. We'll just have a moment of silence before they use their instruments and their voices. And um, maybe just whatever it is that God is speaking to you about... I'm just convinced the Father wants to give us so much more than we are at times able to receive or know how to receive. Holy Spirit, would you help us? We thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to read these letters. Uh, that were first read out to these churches all those years ago. And uh, we thank you that um, you're speaking to us today. And we, we want to be those who hear and see. So help us hear and see. And help us receive what you have for us.